0: to Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel.
1: Open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you.
0: So in 2013, I graduated from seminary and my last name is Barnes. So at the um, receiving of my diploma, I was early on and I remember I walked across the stage, I took my diploma and I walked out the door um, and didn't stay for the rest because I had to get to Santa Barbara for my wedding. So I got married that day, and then we went on our honeymoon. We came back from our honeymoon, and we immediately flew across the country to start our new lives in Florida. So we left California. And waiting for us was Pastor Samuel and his wife, Benita, who welcomed us with open arms and loved us extremely well, taught me a lot about life and ministry. And so now it is my pleasure that, uh, that Samuel, that I would be able to welcome Samuel to Carmel-by-the-Sea, and Samuel will be here with us for a week. He's going to preach this Sunday and then next Sunday, and he gets to stay at my house. We get to reminisce about all sorts of things, Um, and so I'm just excited to have my buddy back in town, but I'm also excited the fact that he is a pretty good preacher, or else I wouldn't have brought him here, Um, and uh, so I'm just looking forward to you all getting to know Samuel and hearing God's word spoken through him, so Pastor Samuel.
1: Thanks, Luke. Yeah, we were serving in Florida together, and we did put a lot of investment into you, so I'm glad it finally paid off, <laughs> and I got to come out to Carmel, because he ended up in Carmel, and I ended up in Texas. This is recorded. Uh, <laughs> we're in Texas, like on the border with Oklahoma, and um, it's a little different than <laughs> literally everyone that we, we'd be like, you know, like signing up at the pharmacy, and they're like, look at our Florida license, and be like, but why? They would just all be confused. and like, the Lord has called us. So the Lord's called me here. Thank you, the Lord. And, <laughs> and Luke also. Uh, let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer as we begin our time together. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for the joy that we have this morning as we gather the fresh new mercies of, of this week. And we set aside this first time of this day, of this week, and dedicate it to you. We pray that as you promised that you would be here with us, Uh, That as we read these words, and as we listen to to the teachings of Jesus himself, that we would be changed by it, and that we would go forward from here, demonstrating the gospel in the places we live, work, and play. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, This is from John chapter 2. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and in the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, sheep doves and others sitting at the tables exchanging money. And so he made a whip out of cords and he drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers. He overturned their tables. And to those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a business? And his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. This is one of those places in the Bible that we don't go to very often, and we don't, you know, put, put on our Facebook pages, <laughs> like, and Jesus made a whip. <laughs> See you this Sunday. <laughs> it's a place where Jesus gets angry. The p- picture we often have in our head of Jesus, if we're honest, is, is someone that's soft and passive and sweet and kind, and that above all things smiles, like, everything's going to be all right. I'm Jesus, right? And yet Jesus, who never sinned, got angry. He got angry actually at a lot of different people. He got angry at his disciples, especially that guy, Peter. In Matthew 16, 23, Jesus turns to Peter and says, Peter, get behind me, Satan. I don't know when the last time you called your best friend Satan, but it's kind of rough. It's kind of tough to say that to someone, but he said that. In Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16, the people are, are bringing these children to come see Jesus and the disciples. Uh, have a low view as everyone did back then of kids and won't let Jesus see them. And so Jesus turns and he rebukes them. And when he saw that the disciples were not letting the children come, it says in the Bible that he was indignant and that he said to them, let these children come to me. Don't hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And then he takes the children in his arms and he blesses them he got angry with the religious leaders of the day. You know that, right? The Pharisees and the Sadducees on a regular basis. One, one passage in Mark chapter three, he's uh, at a synagogue and there's a man there with a shriveled hand. And so the religious leaders of the day are looking for a way to accuse Jesus and to, and to come at him. And so they're watching closely to see if he's going to heal on the Sabbath. And Jesus knows their hearts. He calls the man up in front of the entire synagogue and he asks all the leaders, these are the the religious leaders, right, the pastors of the day, the people who are supposed to care and have compassion on the people. And he says, hey, what do you think? Is it better on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill it? And their response, they they don't say anything. They remain silent. And the verse says, he looked around at them in anger, deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. And he says to the man, stretch out your hand and his hand is completely restored. You know, anger is a normal even a healthy emotion. In fact, if you are actually never angry in your relationships, then that actually indicates that there's a problem in your relationships. And some of you might be taking that right now saying, great, I have great relationships. I'm mad at everybody all the time. (laughs) Like, slow your rolls, not that far. Um, But we do need to be able to say to someone we care about, I'm angry. I've got an issue, and yet for the most part, particularly in Christian culture and Christian community, we've lost the ability to do this. And as Christians, we often think that the more spiritual you are, the more likely you will never get angry. But when you are able to say, I'm angry with you, then what that means is there's actually a connection. You have a relationship with that person. They matter to you. And in fact, if someone is never, ever angry with you, no matter what you do, then you probably don't matter that much to them. Now, to be clear, there's a difference between healthy, relational anger that is expressed appropriately and the anger that we're often familiar with, which is the result of being broken people. And Dr. Townsend, who's kind of my go-to Christian psychologist, describes that as the difference between these two types. You have clean anger, which is healthy, appropriate anger, and then messy anger, and that's the kind of anger that we have as broken people. Clean anger is the kind of anger that God demonstrates and that Jesus demonstrates. And messy anger is the kind we often demonstrate with one another. And so before we kind of dive into clean anger, I have to address the messy anger first, right? We have to to look at that. And I want to get it out of the way. And messy anger is almost always the result of some sort of baggage that we're carrying. And we all have baggage from our lives that we've built up. If you don't have any yet, actually you have the most, you're denying it, (laughs) right? But some of us have these little, like, fanny packs of, of, of anger or baggage of issues that we carry around with us, like the tourists, you know, they've got their money there, keep it safe. Um, and then some of us have, like, that large Samsonite international travel luggage, like the hard kind. Have you ever seen that? And again, if you say and you don't have any, you've got the most. Um, but it, not the main topic for today, but I just want to hit, I can't talk about anger and not uh, just briefly address some of these the baggage anger that we all carry around with one another. Um, so some of us carry this baggage of being disconnected from other people. And we want to be close with others, but because of something that's happened in the past, we are distant or suspicious. We have problems trusting people. And because there's that gap between us wanting to be in a relationship, but because of our past not being able to be in a relationship, it manifests itself as a secondary emotion, as anger. Others carry this baggage of being codependent, on the outside, they seem great, but then you dig down, you find out that they are miserable inside because they feel like they're owned by everyone else. They believe that they're responsible for holding the whole world together, and so they have no choice but to be a constant martyr. And they're always, these are the kind of people that are like always smiling all the time, and they're like, everything's great, that's fine. And you say, how are you doing? You're like, oh, that's fantastic. I have no choices in life. It's great. <laughs> doing fine, doing, doing pretty. There are perfectionists. Um, who live up to the standard, they they're trying to live up to the standard of being perfect all the time and yet reality is no, they know that they can't and so there's a gap in reality and, and who they want to be and so that makes them angry at themselves. There are those who never express anger at all and so they just turn it inward and just push it right deep, deep down inside where it festers. That's awesome. There's childish anger. Um, this is the one that's very often, you, you just don't get what you want and so you just blow up. And then there's malignant anger, and that's a really dangerous one. That's where people enjoy revenge because they feel like they've been a victim. They feel like they're justified in whatever they do. So these are all examples of messy, messy anger. And so if you heard yourself in there or you know someone, that baggage has to be dealt with before you can even begin to comprehend what clean anger looks like and how to, how to manage that. And so Pastor Luke is a pastor here, so talk to him later after I leave and go back to Texas about <laughs> those issues. But seriously... If, if you were like, hey, that, some of that might have resonated with me a little bit, find someone to talk to that you can trust, that you can share with. Don't go through that stuff alone. But what we are talking about today in Scripture is, is clean anger. Clean anger is the anger that gets expressed by God. Why? Because we matter to Him. It's not anger over little things like, like just losing it at a red light. God gets angry when people hurt each other. That makes Him mad. He gets angry when people blow Him off. And they dismiss him and they go their own way because that ends up hurting themselves. He gets angry when there is deception, when there is betrayal, when there is injustice. Clean anger is a signal that says love is being compromised here. And in the purest and highest form, that's what anger should be. God's anger is a clean anger. And so today we're going to look at a passage to see how God takes what is righteous and clean anger. And he reprocesses that anger and expresses it in a way that is not standard or expected. He expresses it as grace and love. And so we just had a passage read in 11th chapter of Hosea. And in that passage that we just read, we saw that God is likened to a father. And he says, I'm not going to carry out my fierce anger. I'm not going to devastate Ephraim. I'm God and not man, the holy one among you. I'm different than you are. I'm not going to come in wrath. I will not come against their cities. Israel, the child of the the covenant, has broken the covenant. He's violated the law, and God is angry. And because he is different than us, he's holy other, holy, 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 right? He expresses that anger by reprocessing it into clean anger and into grace and love that he extends to Israel. And we see this in scripture in multiple places, all the places that we just talked about with Jesus in his life, and we see it in teachings as well. So just then we talked about Jesus got angry with the Pharisees, right? He's sitting there talking about how this man has been crippled for life and he's going to do something nice and all the people are silent and he's, it makes him indignant. And so Jesus turns and what does he do? He heals the man. His anger gets expressed as healing. He gets angry at his disciples for not letting the children come forward. And so what does he do? Is he, does he take it out on the disciples? No, he turns instead and blesses the children. So he takes the anger, the righteous, just, clean anger that he feels, and he reprocesses it into grace and a demonstration of grace. And our main passage is one of the parables where Jesus teaches on this same same thing. It's how God's anger is reprocessed into grace. And, And Dr. Kenneth Bailey, I'm going to quote him later, but he really has brought this to light. And I was talking to someone earlier. He's a. A scholar of scholars who he actually passed a couple years ago, but he went and lived in the, in the near East, Middle, Middle East, and he would go and live with villages for years at a time, and he'd tell these parables of Jesus to them to see the way in which their cultural context they would understand them. And then he came back and shared all that with us. And I was like, "Oh, thanks. I, did, I didn't want to do that, so I appreciate you doing it for us. <laughs> so uh, open up your, your Bibles to Luke chapter 14, verses 16 through 24. Luke 14, 16 to 24, that's the main passage, and this is the parable of the great banquet. And the point that we're looking at today is anger and how that man in the story in the parable, who represents God, of course, uh, processes anger and how it gets demonstrated as grace. But I can't help but point out the context around this story. It's one of my favorite parables because... Jesus gets invited to like this swanky dinner party and he goes to the Pharisees and Sadducees and he's sitting there with them. And one of the guys is like, hey, this is a great party. We're having so much fun. It's going to be like this in heaven one day when we eat at the banquet of God. And Jesus is like, you're right. You're not going to be there. And he's like, whoa. Okay, Jesus. He says, instead, the poor, the lame, the crippled, everyone that you don't allow at your table are going to be the ones with me in heaven and you're not going to be there. So Thanks, Jesus. Uh, Luke chapter 14, verses 16 through 24. A certain man was preparing a great banquet and he invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, everything is now ready. And they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I just bought a field. I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. And still another said, I just got married. I can't come. It's like all these excuses. So we'll stop right there. There's a huge party being planned. And in this culture, you actually had two invitations that would go out. The first invitation would be to RSVP and basically say, I will come to the party. So you can go ahead and prepare everything. And then the second invitation would go out that would say, basically, the party is now ready. It's been prepared. We, we don't have like Facebook alerts or, you know, I, I watches or anything back then. You just, here's the second Second set of information. The party is now here. Come now. So this is the second invitation that's gone out. So it was incredibly rude for, for people to begin to make excuses after they had already said, you know, go kill the fattened calf, get all of the party preparations ready, and now tell me that it's ready? Okay, I'm not coming. I'm glad that you made everything ready. And these are all terrible excuses if you look at the culture of the day, perhaps even outright lies about people buying things that they have never seen. I'm not sure how you try an oxen out, but you generally I, I think that you would want to see the oxen before you bought one. Does anyone have any oxen experience in here? No? Well, that's why that guy went over to the Middle East, right? To figure that stuff out. And then uh, this is an excuse I use all the time. My wife won't let me, but apparently back then that was also flimsy. All these excuses are very flimsy. It seems there is some sort of agenda that's been brewing in this community. That everybody knows each other. That they've decided that they are going to boycott this guy's party, even after they've all said... Yes, and so what is the master's emotional response to basically being rejected and treated like trash? He gets very, very angry. And it's appropriate, clean, angry. He has every right to be angry, and it's emotionally healthy for him to feel angry about the injustice in these relationships. So in verse twenty-one you read, The servant came back, he reported to his master, and so what happened? The owner of the master became owner of the house became angry. And he ordered his servant, and we're gonna pause there how would you respond? How do you think the original hearers expected this man to respond? I mean, and you give, think about the other parables of Jesus where people are mistreated and so forth and so on, and how does the king respond? The initial reaction would be to express your anger as anger, right? Maybe you defriend them on Facebook. I'm not going to talk to that guy anymore. You write a long email about your disappointment and send it out. If you have some of that unhealthy baggage that we talked about earlier, maybe you seek to revenge, uh, to plot, to destroy any parties that they are having. You try to find out what's going on. Instead, the anger is reprocessed into an act of grace. He doesn't retaliate, as you expect, but instead his anger at those excuses and insults is reprocessed into grace by inviting outcasts and outsiders. And that grace takes a form of costly demonstration of unexpected love. So the owner of the house became angry, and he ordered his servant... Go out quickly into the streets and the alleys and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame, the very people that are not accepted in the Jewish religious culture. Sir, the servant said, what you have ordered has been done. There's still room. And so the master told his servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes, make them come in so that my house will be full. And I tell you, not one of those men who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. So here the master uses the energy that is generated by the anger of his injustice, and he orders the servants to go out. And to his own expense, a great expense, he demonstrates grace and love to the outcasts of society. Anger is an emotion that generates energy. That's kind of like an an Eastern thought, but it is very something very practical that we've all experienced, right? When you're angry, there is this feeling that wells within you that you need to respond. And if you, you bottle up that anger, it, it leads to some turmoil within you, right? Anger says, I want to do something. Your face gets red. You feel adrenaline. There's a physical response. You kind of begin to gear up and you want to take action and say, stop, that's wrong. Anger generates energy within you. That's, that's why if you go to the gym, all these people are just like cranking it out. They get all those emotions out and leave it there, right? Move on with life. Anger says, I can do something. By the way, when you're in a situation where you can't do anything and you have anger, it turns into grief. Anger says, I can do something. It generates energy. And if there's nothing that you can do, it moves into grieving that reality. There's something else that takes an enormous amount of self-inner energy, and that's being self-sacrificial and loving others. It takes energy to show a costly demonstration of love and grace to others. And so what we see in this passage is that the energy that is being generated from the injustice begins as anger, and as the story goes on, is reprocessed. The energy isn't lost. it is repurposed and expressed as grace and love and self-sacrifice. And so as we put ourselves into the, the parable and into the teaching, we ask ourselves, what are we angry about? There's something. What is it that makes you angry? Maybe what's inside of you right now, maybe it's politics, maybe you feel betrayed by somebody, maybe it's some theological issue, maybe it's where you work or who you work with or your neighbor or your HOA. Ugh, every time the HOA gets me when I say that, <laughs> i really upset about my lawn. Um, maybe it's your family, just think for a second, what or who is it that makes me angry? Don't tap anybody, but just think about it. And then, two things. One, if you value that relationship, think about how you might be able to express to that person by saying, I'm angry because you matter to me. Let's sit at the table together and talk about it. And then, whatever you are struggling with, also consider the possibility that God can help your anger be reprocessed into grace as a demonstration of the gospel in your life. So that instead of of longing to make others feel the pain and the discomfort that I feel, what would it look like to reprocess that energy and that pain and that anger into grace? What would it look like to be Christ-like, to be met with insult and to respond with further invitation, to experience anger and rather than lashing out with that energy, instead lashing out with grace and love and invitation? You may get crucified right? But that's the life we live as followers of the crucified one. And of course, as we think about crucifixion, the cross is where we see this ultimately demonstrated. Anger and wrath of God being reprocessed into grace. And that guy Kenneth Bailey wrote this, he said, at the cross, God takes his justifiable, reasonable anger, his clean anger at our rebellion, and he reprocesses it into grace through an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Oftentimes, we are taught that the cross is where God's anger, his wrath gets poured out onto Jesus as, as two separate people. And by the way, nonbelievers, really, this is a stumbling block. If you've ever talked to someone who doesn't get Jesus and you say, yeah, we sinned, God was really mad, and so he hung Jesus on a cross. You're like, what? That's what we teach. And in some respects, it's true, but also what's true is that if we believe, and we really do believe this, that Jesus is God, the reality is that on the cross it wasn't God just taking out something on a third party. God is taking his anger and his wrath through himself, and he's reprocessing it into grace. And this guy Kenneth Bailey tells a parable to kind of illustrate these different theological views. And so the parable goes like this. There's a mom who has a young son named Johnny, and, and she's getting ready to host a social gathering. And so uh, she makes lemonade, that's what you do for social gatherings, and uh, she puts the tablecloth down and you put, she puts it on the table and then she turns around to, to continue to get ready for the party and she looks back and says, Johnny, don't, don't do anything, you know, near the tablecloth, that's a very large pitcher of lemonade, it's in a glass pitcher, you know Johnny, don't do that. And then she turns back around and, and begins to work and as soon as she turns her back on him, John, what does Johnny do? He grabs the tablecloth because he's Johnny. And uh, he starts pulling on it, and mom looks over to her dismay and is like, you've got to be kidding me. She has a flash of deep disappointment and anger, and she thinks to herself, why, why can't children listen? Why can't Johnny listen? I wouldn't have this problem. And so then there's three possible endings to the story, okay? So ending number one, mom is mad. Like, not cool, Johnny. Her anger drives her to rush across the room. She grabs the pitcher of lemonade and says, Johnny, I literally just told you not to pull on the tablecloth take this and pours out the lemonade on top of Johnny's face right <laughs> And the moms are laughing with delight, like they would love to do that. Like, like, oh, I wish. I wish. I once had this is not related. I had a mom tell me once that she 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 tripped once over the bed and accidentally her hand went forward and punched her son in the stomach. And she said, Is it wrong I felt good <laughs> about it? And I was like, No, no, that's perfectly normal. And then I was like, that's not normal. <laughs> So this is, this is a familiar mindset, this first scenario, right? Old Testament view, law, and punishment. God gives the law. Don't pull in the lemonade. There's uh, humankind's told to obey, and there's disobedience if you, if you do it. So the, the punishment results. You get a lemonade poured on you, okay? Ending number two. And these next two are basically like gospel, okay? And there's two perspectives that Christians often use. One is uh, that there's a third actor. So this is Billy. John, Johnny has an older brother, Billy, and, and Billy's a good older son, like Jesus, in the other room working on his homework. Mom's mad. She rushes across the room, grabs the pitcher just in time, and says, Johnny, I should dump this on you for disobeying. But that would, you'd get a cold, you'd be sick, all sorts of issues. So, Billy, come in here. I know you're doing your homework, but come here. And she pours it on Billy and says, take that, Billy. That's because of Johnny. Um, See, Johnny, what you made me do. And (laughs) Johnny's like, what? <laughs> Johnny feels very guilty and crawls under the table and starts crying at his disbelief. So this is, uh, this is the way we generally describe the cross. Um, we are bad. We deserve something bad. God picked up Jesus and took it all out on him. So ending number three, this is kind of like, think about Jesus as God, not just as this, this third person. Mom notices the pitcher's about to fall. She runs over there, and she reprocesses that anger into grace as she rushes across the room and just as she reaches the table she knocks it aside the sh- the picture shatters and mom sustains a deep cut in her own arm her arm begins to bleed profusely she grabs a towel that's over her shoulder wraps it up the blood soaks through begins to drip on the floor and terrified johnny begins to cry and and, and the mom doesn't say johnny don't cry i'm not going to spank you i'm going to get billy in here and spank him in just a second don't worry That wouldn't do any good. Johnny's not crying because he's afraid of of being punished. It wouldn't help to say she's going to punish somebody else. He's crying because he saw mom get hurt for him and he knows it's his fault. And in this third ending, there's no Billy in the next room. Mom reaches out and says, it's all right, Johnny. I love you anyway and I forgive you. It's it's okay. In three days, I'm going to be able to take this bandage off. My arm will heal And in mom's all-encompassing embrace, and with the sound of mom's offer of forgiveness penetrating his consciousness, Johnny's guilt melts away, and so does his desire to disobey her. He knows that mom got hurt for him and that she still loves him. There is no third party. Mom got hurt for Johnny. There's no Billy in the next room. And so Johnny's disobedience had made it inevitable someone was going to get hurt. That's just reality. And mom chooses to endure that suffering in the place of Johnny, but her focus is on redemption, not penalty. And so Johnny now realizes that mom's initial admonition to leave the tablecloth alone, it wasn't just an arbitrary exercise of will. It wasn't, you just do this because I say to do it. It was an exercise of love. And given the realities of glass pitchers, of little boys, of tables, gravity, mom's law was an expression of her love for him. And Johnny only discovers the depth of that love when he sees mom knock the pitcher away and sustain the cut in her arm for him. It's what witnessing that costly love that is what changes him. And Paul writing says this: he says, Christ died for our sins. And then later he interprets that. He says, God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. In other words, there is no third party, it's God. At the, at the cross itself, we see this demonstration where God reprocessed His wrath and His anger into grace for us. Jesus Himself begins the week in anger, flipping tables. He's so mad. And yet at the end of the week, He's hanging from a cross. And so we ask ourselves, where in our own lives can we take the energy that is generated in us from injustice and clean anger, and how can we reprocess that into costly, self-sacrificial love for others? Because doing so demonstrates that Christ lives within us, and it demonstrates that His kingdom is here now in the places we live, work, and play. Amen? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do ask that you would work a miracle within us, That the anger that we hold on to, that the anger that comes, just righteous anger, clean anger about injustices in this world and broken relationships, that you would have us use that for your kingdom, that we would become living examples of the gospel in all of our relationships. We thank you not only for the demonstration that you've given in Jesus, but the power to change by the presence of your Holy Spirit in our very lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Carmel Presbyterian Church, visit our website at www.carmelpres.org or any of our social media pages. Have a blessed rest of your week.